Hi, everyone. Good morning. It is a rainy day in Japan. We are into rainy season. I'm JJ Walsh here in Hiroshima, Japan, your host for Seek Sustainable Japan. And today I have the pleasure of talking with author and artist and a longtime inspiration for many of us women who are raising families in Japan, Rebecca Ottawa. Thank you so much for joining today. Thank you very much. Now you told me Ottawa. Sorry, I said oh. Ottawa as a mistake as I'm introducing you. You've had such a long, wonderful career in Japan. And you grew up, you were originally born in America, in California. You were raised in Queensland, Australia. You studied Japanese in Australia. And then you actually came to Kyoto after that and have been here ever since. Is that right? That's right. So you, uh, I, I'm always impressed by Australian students who are studying Japanese. And that was your situation as well, studying a bit of Japanese language before coming, is that right? Oh yes, uh, I studied uh, in a pilot program in Brisbane, Australia, uh, high school. Uh, so I started when I was 13 years old, started, started studying Japanese. And uh, then I went to university to continue my studies with Jap Japanese. Of course, you can't really be fluent until you come here and have to speak. So um, I was not fluent for a very long time, but I was, I, I got the basic, you know, skeleton of the language down. Yeah. And you said you, you started as an artist and then writing came later. Is that right? Um, well, when I was a kid, uh, my mother encouraged me to write by encouraging me to read. And my dad was a commercial artist and he used to always, you know, be sketching stuff and he encouraged me to draw. So I guess my parents encouraged me in my most, uh, the core hobbies that I have, drawing and writing. Yeah. And uh, like your writing, your art is also a real fusion of your Japanese insights and influence as well as your maybe your Western influence in there as well. Do you feel like your art is a representation of your years in Japan, but also your influence from abroad? Well, I very much enjoy patterns. And Japan, as you know, um, has wonderful, wonderful patterns uh, in the um, textiles, in the paper, in the pottery. And um, I really enjoy exploring those patterns in my own art. Ah, I love that. Um, you studied, you got your master's in Japanese Buddhism in yes, Kyoto. Is that right? Yes. So I read really interesting about you saying you were raised as a Christian, but you have no problem following a lot of the traditions in Japan, taking care of the altars and that kind of thing. I found mm. that really interesting. Well, I... Uh... My mother wasn't happy, but uh, I did become a Buddhist um, in my mind. Um, there's no like conversion uh, pattern that you have to follow. But um, as I was studying Buddhism, uh, which is not really something that you can learn from books, but fortunately I had other uh, experiences as well. Um, and that, 
prepared me for being a Japanese wife and having to do these not only Buddhist but also Shinto uh, observances within the house. Um, most people who live in Japan know that uh, Japan is a place where you aren't just one religion. Um, they hop around among various religions depending on what um, their need is. And Buddhism uh, in general is associated with uh, death, reincarnation, and um, also it's a social thing, you know, what temple do, do you belong to, all that kind of stuff, especially in rural areas. Um, we have, we used to have uh, regular observances at the temple, and that was okay with me. That um, wasn't the sect that I had hoped for, but anyway, it doesn't matter. <laughs> I'm not going to get into that because it's too complicated. Um, yeah, but it yeah. is very connected to a lot of the things that you write about. Uh, also, you studied tea ceremony. You were at the Uda, Udaske uh, Tea School in Kyoto, Senke, right? the, uh, the foreigner's tea school, which is called the Midori Kai. I was a member of that for, ooh, I don't know, um, five or six years, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, that's so interesting. Uh, I I love all of your stories, Rebecca. Your your stories speak to me so much. Uh, I want to talk about your three books um, that you shared with me today. But uh, just to mention that we met at the Minka Summit, and you were talking about building community in rural Japan. Uh, mm. Do you want to just give us a little summary of some of the things you talked about at the Minka Summit? Uh, yes, well, um, as most people know, the uh, community in Japan, rural community, is uh, in, com in common with other parts of the world. It's exceedingly uh, in danger right now because younger people uh, really do not want to live in the countryside. It's inconvenient, it's hot or cold, it's full of bugs and blah, blah, blah. People don't like it. So... Um, <clears throat> The community these days consists extremely much of older people, um, people my age or older, um, who have lived here all their lives, who have a particular way of, um, of relating to their environment and to each other. And uh, I think that's something that people have to realize when they want to you know, buy a minka and live in a particular place is that the community as it is uh, these days is mostly made up of old people and most of those old people are extremely um, attached to their home and to the ways of life that they know. Um, it's... Uh, a certain, certainly an uphill battle for a person to come into a place like this and to be accepted in any way. I was lucky because I married into it, so I was kind of de facto accepted. But uh, if you just buy a house um, and decide to live there, I think it's very important to realize that the people around you, um, they're not just you know, decrepit old people, they have all kinds of history and uh, important things to share if you can um, find uh, ways to communicate with them, yeah. I guess. Yeah. Yeah, that's really 
It's great. And I, as someone who's also lived in Japan for many years, I really appreciate your insights about community and uh, living in an old house and outside the main cities, as well as your insights on culture and understanding the complexity of Japanese and Western culture and putting your character into your life. I, I read this in your book to give uh, local people an idea of other lifestyle options. And I thought that was so wonderful. And uh, don't be afraid to be yourself is one of the lessons of reading your stories. I love that. Well, that happened rather late in life for me. Um, it While my mother-in-law was alive, I spent a lot of time trying to be somebody that I wasn't. Um, trying to be, you know, not the ideal, you know, Japanese wife and blah, blah, blah. Um, there was a lot of pressure to fit in. Uh, I think my mother-in-law felt that I would be happiest. The more I fit in, the happier I would be. That's what she thought. And after she died and um, I had a little bit more free time, I was able to explore uh, what I wanted and what I felt was the meaning of this life that I lead. Yeah. It was uh, kind of a long, tough road to get to there. Yeah, yeah definitely. Um, but now you're in an age and a physician of authority in your situation as the house, the top of the house. Um, but like you mentioned in your book, uh, that means you bathed last in the traditional bathing order in a Japanese house. Pretty so much. Even, even though you have technically power as the, the mother or the owner, the head of the house, um, there's still a lot of uh, duties that you perform, kind of thank, thankless duties that uh, you're expected to perform in Japan, right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, speaking of community, there are a lot of things that the women are expected to do. For example, show up at various cleaning uh, places. For example, we have to clean our village hall. We have to clean our shrine. And that is pretty much women's job to do that. Um, the men decide everything and the women sort of follow along behind picking up the pieces. <laughs> That's it's so frustrating. I think I still rally against that, right? Like, oh, yeah, why, absolutely. why just me? Why is it only me that that is asked to do these community things, you know? And <laughs> and trying to find the reason inside me to be part of doing the community things. And uh, yes, exactly to uh, to reconcile it with your own idea that you know this is busy work. We don't really need to do it. Um, why can't we all just agree not to, you know? But I realized that um, when we were doing the athletic meets, I realized that in Japan, there's this whole thing of, well, I did it, then therefore you have to do it too. Um, there's no spot at which you can cut it and say, okay, from now on, we're not going to do this anymore, because that would disrespect all the people who had done it in the past. And um, that's extremely frustrating. And not only for me, but also for my husband, who's much more in involved in village life than I am. So, yeah, it's the I simple. Say, why don't you change it? You know, why don't yeah. you just change it? You can't change it. <laughs> 
it's the senpai kohai thing, right? Like yeah, you go exactly. through all that so you horrible know, I mean, training. I'm not going to let you off just because you don't want to do it. I'm I did it, so you have to as well. Yeah. Yeah. And I think we see elements of that in America and other countries too, right? Like oh, yeah. recently, uh, there's going to be $10,000 uh, given back as student loans. Oh, and right. people who've already paid off their loans are saying, wait, I paid it off. That's not fair. You know? Well, so, yeah. But at the same time, you have to think like, for example, think about the vaccine for polio. People who went through that disease and who, you know, suffered because of that disease and now suddenly nobody has to get it because everybody's vaccinated and it's not that we're taking anything away from you it's that you know things you know time marches on things change and uh, i think a lot of the things in japan too people are starting to um very painfully realize that things are changing and that they have to change as well yeah yeah that's it's really important and to keep to keep progressing and not just assume that Japanese culture is like this Western culture is like this mm. uh, try to give people the benefit of the doubt and I see that in so many of your stories talking about uh, misinterpretation miscommunication uh, internalized resentment uh, you were told by your mother-in-law to scream inside your heart and keep it to yourself, right? <laughs> well, um, that, that screaming inside the heart was something that I found. Um, uh, actually, that was that came from Corona. Um, that came from COVID. The uh, it was some some sign that I saw in Japanese. It said, "Please scream inside your heart," meaning that you don't. Um, and this is very Japanese, don't show your especially negative emotions to other people because it would make them feel bad and we want to preserve a nice uh, atmosphere, uh, you know, within the group. So um, to put, push, put yourself uh, separate from other people and saying, I feel this, you know, is very, very foreign to Japanese people. So um, it's important that, you know, you learn how to scream inside your heart instead of out loud. <laughs> wow. Yeah. I hadn't heard that, but you were told to kind of keep your, what was it? Bad face. To oh, yourself. absolutely. My mother-in-law was always complaining about my face. I guess I have a resting bitch face, but the fact is that um, she always thought that I was angry just by looking at me and uh, whether I was or not. And um, mostly I was, but anyway, <laughs> And she's like, fix your face. You know, the guests are coming. You don't look like that. You know, I'm like, well, what do you mean? This is my face. What am I supposed to do? You know, um, maybe she would be happier if I wore a paper bag over my head. <laughs> I never thought of that. <laughs> but that gave you, I think that gave you a lot of empathy for a lot of other uh, women in Japan who grew up under that same kind of rigid. Absolutely. Tutelage. Absolutely. Because people, this is something that, you know, I mean, people assume that everybody in Japan thinks and feels and believes exactly the same way. Um, they look like they do, but behind that is um, their real, the real feelings are definitely there. They're just hidden for the sake of the group. And if you can get back there and you, you can get people to talk about those things that are behind the mask, it's very, very interesting. The 
problems, the adjustments that they have to make are exactly the same as anybody else because they're, of course, they have their human um, psychology as well as anybody else does. Uh, really interesting. I saw in one of your interviews, you were talking about uh, future writing that you want to do and maybe talking about the Japanese psyche or community in rural Japan. And I feel like you you do touch on those topics uh, in your books that you've already published, right? Yes, I do. Um, I would like to write something that's a little more anecdotal uh, rather than essays, um, a sort of a, well, this is what happened to me when I bumped up against this particular psychic uh, energy of Japan, that kind of thing. Um, the other thing I'd like to try to write is, as I mentioned before, the the fact that uh, the countryside is emptying. Uh, you, many younger people, uh, not everybody, but many younger people have decided that they don't want to live here. They'd rather live in the city. And um, the fact that that is disrupting the continuity of rural society um, to a very, very great extent. And it also has a psychic uh, impact on the people that remain, I think, um, especially the older people. They're like, well, wait a minute. Uh, it's just like I said before, I did that. Why can't you? You know, I was a, a young wife under a mother-in-law's thumb for years. You could do it too. It's not impossible kind of thing, but they, they're like, no, oh, I don't want to, you know? <laughs> so that's that. <laughs> Yeah. I hear a lot of uh, resistance to for change in the rural areas. Like uh, we are in, doing a lot of different programs to encourage young entrepreneurs to go to rural areas, start businesses, do teleworking, develop new projects. But quite often what I hear from these people that I talk to is there's a lot of resistance to change from the people who are already there. Indeed. And sometimes to the extreme that they would ha happily see it die before they would see it change. And I'm sure you've you've seen examples of that too. Well, um, I was once at a meeting that was for that very thing. They were looking for ideas to, you know, revivify the neighborhood or the area. And I got I the participation was random. So I, I ended up in a group that was all old Japanese men, except me. And the moderator said, okay, well, um, how would you change things? And to a man, all these guys said, put it back the way it was. Put it back the way it was. And I think they're thinking about the, I don't know, golden years of their youth or whatever. Um, it's not only a matter of being older, individually, but also to see the changes. Uh, old people in Japan are under incredible amount of pressure from both sides. And um, it's really, really difficult for them to uh, accept that things change, even though when they were young, things were changing, obviously, um, around uh, the end of World War II and uh, even before that, lots of big changes in the society. And uh, you know, uh, to look back to a golden age and, and, and wish that it would come again is, as we all know, um, a rather futile exercise. Yeah. Yeah. I, I come, come through that a lot. Uh, I'm doing a lot of research before I do tour guiding in Japan in Hiroshima. And you see that, right? You see wish 
wishtry, like、mm-hmm. wish history.、Um, mm-hmm. Trying to、uh, look back and think that was so much better. Let's bring that back exactly. And in some cases, for sustainable innovation. There are good points that we should bring back、uh, in your books. I'm so excited to read your enthusiasm for bamboo, and、mm. even talking about the the sewage system and how it used to be reused in the fields. This is something Asby Brown has also mentioned.、Um, now it's just put out to sea.、Um, yeah. You know, there are solutions from the past that we should maybe rethink and、yes. uh, repurpose. Right. Definitely,、um, I think that one of the things that I learned、uh, living in this place、um, is thriftiness,、uh, saving things to use again.、Um, the society these days, Japanese modern society and global society as a whole, is terribly, terribly wasteful.、Um, there's not enough of a feeling of, well, this is perfectly okay. Let's use it for something else. Let's repurpose it. Let's save it so that it can be repurposed later.、Um, I think it's really, really important, especially in a in a farming community, but also other places. The simplest tools are always the best because they can be used for different different things, and、um, you know things like old sheets, old futons, old、uh, carpets. You know those things have a certain value. Uh, which is, you know, you don't just throw them away. You find ways to use them again, and I think that's really an important thing, an important lesson.、Um, I have read As- Asbury Brown's books, and、uh, I'm thrilled to live in a place where, yes, we do have fruit trees, we do have pampas grass. Um, and various things growing on the property that used to be extremely useful in their ordinary lives, and、um, you know, I really wish that more of the things you know survived, but of course they didn't.、Um, but my mother-in-law was always a very thrifty person. She wasn't a member of the stuff generation, as my husband and I are. You know, you collect all these things. Around you, and in the end, you don't really ever look at them. You don't ever really use them, which is very sad. I think. Yeah, that reminds me of when I was talking with、uh, author Winifred Bird, and she did a beautiful book about eating wild in Japan,、mm. and she talked a lot about bamboo and how bamboo used to be used for everything,、mm-hmm. from baskets to clothing. To food, and she went to a Kyoto ten-course bamboo restaurant where she ate ten different courses all of bamboo.、Mm-hmm. Um, but the idea that it's not used as much as it should、um, makes bamboo a, a nuisance and grow too much and go into people's houses and gardens, and people don't like it anymore. And you often talk about this finding a balance with nature、mm. that there's that push-pull. Uh, experience, especially in rural Japan,、uh, with nature and pests and、mm. and things. Can you speak to that just a little bit? Well, I personally don't kill anything、um, except accidentally,、um, but I know people who make exceptions for this or that insect or this or that animal. I just. Usually, just if I see you know some sort of poisonous or dangerous animal, I just wait for it to go away, and they usually do. I mean, they don't want to bite you, 
they just want to continue with their lives same as we do so um that's my own uh idea but unfortunately not shared by very many people around here <laughs> and uh things like bamboo um i think that part of the problem is that the husbandry of uh for example bamboo groves and um, also the forests in japan um, there's really very little husbandry that of the wild places as there used to be. And one of the reasons that, for example, there's not so many um, forest mushrooms anymore is that the undergrowth is inhibiting the growth of the mushrooms. There didn't used to be that much undergrowth because people would go in there and cut it. They would say, okay, we want the mushrooms, so therefore we have to do this. That kind of knowledge is uh, disappearing rapidly, and I think it's a real shame. That's really interesting, isn't it? How when uh, we make some choices to improve things or make things more efficient, and actually it throws nature off a little bit, yeah, and we exactly. lose what we were trying to protect, right? But yeah, then hopefully we'll readjust. <laughs> yeah, you have to, you know, learn what you can sit on and what you can't, I guess. Yeah. yeah. You have this great uh, section talking about nature in, in your book here uh, at home in Japan on page 93 about pests. And uh, when you say anyhow for myself, that part, could you just read that? Because when I ask people about uh, moving to rural Japan, I've done a few Twitter polls and the number one reason people say they cannot even consider moving to the rural areas is insects. And I was really amazed to hear uh, how you are living as much as possible in balance and harmony with your insect neighbors. Um, and I really like that part uh, in the end of page okay. 93. Yeah, can you okay. read it? I can see it says, anyhow for myself. Yeah. <clears throat> anyhow for myself, I am grateful that life in the countryside has accustomed me to most of the manifestations of nature. I think camaraderie is better than fear and loathing. And living here, I've been able to cross most creatures off my fear and loathing list. By the time I die, I hope this list will be a blank and I will have learned to embrace every part of life on this planet in friendship. Yes, well. <laughs> Is that still so. true? You wrote that 10 years ago, right? Yeah, well, I've been working on it. And uh, I think that um, like when my... Uh, son and his family come here, one of the biggest things they say is, oh, there's so many bugs, 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 bugs all over the place. And I try to say to them, well, look, that bug, I, I, I try to get them interested in the bugs yeah? and um, say, okay, well, this bug eats this, that bug eats that. Uh, these little bugs uh, are around, but they don't hurt anybody. Let's just leave them alone, you know, instead of saying, oh, you know, we have to spray, we have to do this, we have to do that. Of course, it's very disconcerting to come upon, for example, a centipede in your house um, or a large spider. Uh, I have had many experiences with those, but even, even now, um, my own feeling is those creatures suddenly appear and it's like, okay, they're malevolent. No, they're not. They're just living their lives and they somehow ended up in a place where we can see them. And 
they want to get away. They want to go. They want to run. So, um, you know, they're not they're not appearing in order to bite you or in order to make your life miserable. And especially things like big spiders. I mean, when you think of the connections, because big spiders, they eat cockroaches. <laughs> and, um, you know, there are a lot of those kinds of um, little connections that you can make and you think, okay, we'll go on and, you know, go and eat the cockroaches. <laughs> just, just, you know, get out of my sight. I don't want to look at you, but I don't mind if you're there kind of. Nah. And, uh, and I always, I try to remind my, my kids um, that centipedes are really good for the garden. Um, so if we can get them outside, get them outside away yeah. from us. <laughs> yeah, I hardly ever see them inside um, myself. I do see them in the garden or in the rock piles and things quite a lot. But, you know, yeah. you just kind of go, oh, a centipede. Okay, well, you just go over there, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Luckily, we haven't been stung either. So um, hopefully that, that philosophy is working. Uh, let's switch gears a little bit. Now, one of the things I love about bugs, uh, as I, far as I've been in Japan, is how uh, there is that fascination with insects and catching and keeping them in boxes and learning about them and beetles and things. Now, yeah, you, you wrote is. a great children's book. Tell us a little bit about My Awesome Japan Adventure. Um, okay. Uh, well, there is a I do remember illustrating one thing to do, do with bugs, but what this is, um, when I did At Home in Japan, the publisher was very taken with my illustrations, which were originally in color. And he said, uh, the publisher said, um, why don't you try doing a children's book? And we kicked around a few ideas and we ended up with this idea of a fifth grade American boy going for homestay to a rural section of Japan and, um, you know, learning various things about Japan and differences between the United States and Japan. And that's how this book came about. And, and I really enjoyed it because it was a lot of fun. I really, really love drawing as much as I love writing. So um, I had a, a ball uh, designing each page and, and figuring out what to do. Yeah, it's, it's really it's really fun, and it it talks about uh, learning the language. It talks about uh, things that kids are really interested in, like ninja. Uh, they were not assassins; they were spies. That kind of thing. I love it. Yeah, there's uh, the um, of course I had to talk to the publisher about layout and also uh, you know which topics would be suitable because as you've probably noticed uh, most children's books about Japan that are available um, talk about Tokyo and uh, I wanted to write something that emphatically was not about Tokyo because Tokyo wonderful as it is is only one part of Japan and uh, these kinds of like for example um, I had did a spread on the rice harvest and um, how the dad of the house had to go out in this machine and, you know, what kinds of things were involved with things like that. Um, a lot of uh, stuff that couldn't be experienced in Tokyo, um, for example, rural school, uh, primary school that this boy ended up going to along with his homestay family uh, children. 
And, um, you know, there's a lot of it was a lot different from anything you'd uh, come across in Tokyo. And I, I think that it worked really well that way to give people an idea of, well, this was based on my own experiences more than anything else, probably, I would say. Um, the sort of things that I found weird, the sort of things that I found interesting, um, you know, ended up being in the book. So, <laughs> yeah, and you raised two boys of your own. So yes. You, you know a lot about uh, a lot of the things that you talk about, how to play Karuta, the oh, new yeah, card game. Oh, yeah, we still do that every year. So it's not, it's not just Pokemon and uh, the anime manga scene and Disneyland when kids come to Japan. There's yeah, exactly. More. There's more to enjoy, right? Yeah, exactly. And, uh, you know, uh, for example, when my grandkids were here, we were playing the uh, game that's called 100 Poems, 100 Poets, one poem from each poet, which is thousands of years old and is still played in at New Year's. But my granddaughter and I, we devised several games with these cards that were completely different from the original game. It was very interesting, yeah? Oh, that's really interesting. I, I was doing a, a virtual tour of an antique toy museum the other day, mm. and they have the Hanafuda uh, cards. They have the Karuta games. And these are things that I don't think modern kids, in, even in Japan, might not know about, right? So they, they may not. I recently went to a, gee, I don't know. Oh, yeah. Um, I'm a member of the um, Old House Preservation Society in our town. And uh, I came across an old deck of Hanafuda from uh, one of these houses. And um, Hanafuda means flower cards. So they're, they're based on the 12 months of different kinds of flowers in Japan. And uh, the Japanese lady that I was with said, what are those? I mean, she'd never seen them before. <laughs> I was like, don't you know about Hanafuda? <laughs> it's such an interesting game because it doesn't involve any words. It's one of the things that I always take with me when I go overseas because you don't have to be able to speak Japanese in order to play it. Yeah. That's that's one of the things that Alex Kerr says about uh, his surprise that his renovated old traditional houses, which had Western toilets and comfortable inside, were so popular with Japanese people. And uh -huh. he realized a lot of people coming from the city had never even stayed in a Japanese house before and they mm -hmm. didn't want to. But yeah. if you can make it comfortable but have the traditional aesthetic, mm -hmm. it's really interesting for them, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think so. Um, it, it sort of combines the best of both worlds in a way. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think the impression was it would only be popular with foreign visitors. Um, so oh. that idea that people living in the cities don't have much exposure to Japanese traditional culture, especially in rural areas, I think is really true, isn't it? Yes, and also a lot of these people, you know, they come into a house like mine and they say, oh, this is just like my grandma's house, you know. So they have that, uh, a lot of them have this sort of memories of um, old houses sort of back in the back of their mind. They still remember what it was like. Yeah. And one of my first experiences in Japan in a very traditional house was how only women would be allowed in the kitchen. And yeah. you had that story of 
your mother-in-law would feel physically sick if your boys were helping in the in the kitchen. So yeah. these are very common. But now everyone's invited. Now that you're you're the head of household, right? <laughs> yeah, but you know, um, it's very interesting. Both my sons, in spite of the fact that my mother-in-law sort of laid down the law about them not helping in the kitchen or helping make the bath or anything like that, um, ended up to be being very domesticated husbands. Um, their wives insisted on it. And I think that um, it's just a matter of when you were born. Um, my mother-in-law didn't like it because that wasn't what she was used to. And uh, meanwhile, you know, the younger girls who would become my son's wives were growing up in a completely different way. So, um, you know, it's just, uh, I felt, I felt like I kind of missed out because I never had a daughter and, uh, I, it would have been nice to have somebody to help me, <laughs> yeah. but, um, it's all right. And I'm glad that my sons are at home in the kitchen and, you know, changing diapers and all different things like that. And, uh, I guess some of the things that I tried to teach them stuck or possibly the things that I tried to teach them were the same as, you know, modern Japanese women think, you know, different from what I had with my own mother-in-law for sure. That sounds like progress to me to have. Yeah, I think it is progress. Active. <laughs> well, everyone should know uh, their way around a kitchen. Everyone should know how to clean. Uh, how to take care of their clothes, um, man or woman, I think. It's just a matter of, you know, being alive, um, human life. You have to be able to do it. That's all. Yeah, it, it helps you. I think as a mother of a son and daughter, um, I'm, I'm trying to train them how to be independent, both of them. And uh, if that makes them a better partner for a future partnerships, that's wonderful too. Yeah, <laughs> that's really important. Yeah. Uh, let's talk a little bit about your most recent book, and then I'd love to hear some of your favorite parts of At Home in Japan. Um, okay. So this, The Mad Kyoto Shoe Swapper, is a collection of short stories. And it's such an interesting and wonderful variety. Some are historical references. Some are even references to your own family's history, your husband's family history. Um, you also have some really interesting, insightful stories about the complexity of character and the psyche, the Western versus Japanese. There's a lot of you and a lot of your learning from your many years of Japan in there. I love these stories. Thank you. Do you, do you have any favorite story from this book? Um, well, I'll tell you uh, the story that I started off with, the very first story in the book was Rhododendron Valley because I, re I heard about a man who had um, committed suicide because he could not afford to pay his doctor bills and he didn't want his family to be um, saddled with all these doctor bills. And I thought that was really noble of him to do that. Um, uh, yeah, there's from a kind of a, a village story that my husband told me, you know, so and so he died in a certain way. And that's why. And I thought, oh, what a great short story that would make. So I started to write it. Yeah. Uh, 
and the the complicated feelings of guilt and uh, things that you have to do obligation um, in Japanese society. You've you've incorporated a lot of these into the stories um, about how how people are suffering through in silence quite often. Yes, indeed. I, I remember the uh, the story about the Valentine's Day, where the Japanese woman she thought that she was terminally ill, and she wanted to make certain arrangements uh, for that with her family. And it turned out that she wasn't terminally ill at all. <laughs> but at the same time, she was uh, she had a certain relationship with um, a foreign colleague at work, and. Um, she felt this incredible pressure to do certain things because she thought that she was going to die. And uh, she never told anybody. She never even went to the doctor. And um, she's like, oh, you know, I, I, I really, really need to get these things done before I die. But she wasn't dying. <laughs> I think that um, that's a very... Uh, extreme example, but I think that a lot of Japanese people um, suffer in silence because that's the way they're brought up. They don't talk about things that bother them. They don't talk about their problems to anybody, really, um, unless they have a really, really close friend or something like that. They don't just kind of say, well, I have all these problems. They kind of, you know, try to just keep calm and carry on as the saying is. Yeah, that's true, isn't it? Um, it was really interesting for me. Uh, I think one of the stories that I found most powerful was about your own family history and uh, finding out that that was a true story. And you were actually married on the day of that festival, right? Yes, it was. The, um, the uh, uh, there was a trial by ordeal that happened about 300, actually they just had the 400th anniversary a little while ago. Um, 400 years ago, um, my family and another family were involved in a, uh, I guess in the, in the West it would be a single combat. Um, they chose representatives and these representatives would have to do something that would result in one of them winning or losing and uh, the ramifications of that. And it was very interesting to write because I knew the bare bones of the story, but to flesh it out as a, as a fictionalized account was really extremely um, interesting. And I, I got to know those people a lot better because of that. Yeah. yeah. And you feel that as the reader, like you get to know them as people that really lived, not just historical figures written with names and dates in a book, which is mm -hmm. often the disconnect with history, right? Yeah, it is. And even though the people in the story were mostly men, uh, you can always feel in the background the power of the women, uh, the power of the protagonist's mother, for example, and also his wife. Um, you could tell that it was important that the, for the men that they get the women's consent for what they had to do. They were like, please help me with this uh, terrible thing that I have to get, get through. Um, I need your support. And the fact that the women 
even though they were in the background, did support uh, their men. Um, I think that that's a thread that runs all through Japanese history. There are various famous women who were wives of famous men who, you know, the famous men couldn't have done whatever they did without these women. Um, and I think it's in incredibly important to remember that in the, in the light of, um, you know, the gender inequality that we see all around us in this society. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And we know these stories from other countries, right? But the thing that I'm I'm trying really hard to do as I work in tourism is to bring up the names of some of these women who are mm -hmm. so absent and missing um, through Japanese history. We need to say what their stories are and give them a place. Yeah, uh, exactly. Um, for example, uh, this protagonist's wife, I said to my husband, doesn't anyone know what her name was? And he said, no. And he showed me the old records of the, what do you call it, the family trees. And the men all had names, but the women would just label woman. When the a girl child was born, she became woman. Woman, 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 somebody's name, woman, woman, somebody's name, somebody's name, woman, woman. <laughs> it was really awful. You know, in those days, well, of course, in those days, uh, people didn't have surnames either very much. Um, this whole idea of having to have a given name and a surname is quite recent in Japan uh, compared to their history. So I guess it's normal. But um, I was quite shocked to realize that none of these women, except for the really like noble women or daughters of famous people, um, they didn't even have names that could be written down. Maybe they were called something in the family, but um, they didn't have an official name. Yeah, that's incredible. I didn't yeah, think of really. it like that. Yeah. <laughs> that's why it's so hard <laughs> to find their name. Yeah, that's one of them. That's one of them. Yeah. Now, you, you have a favorite part of At Home in Japan that you wanted to read for us? Um, well, I had been preparing something, uh, and it's, to, it's in the last part of the um, book, which is about, uh, what's that part called? Excuse me, wait a second. Oh, it's called Changes, and this uh, part is, I was uh, trying to link the idea of transplanting vegetables, which I quite often do, um, to the fact that, you know, here I am, a transplant in this society. <clears throat> so I just want to read one paragraph from the second last uh, essay, which is called Taking Root. Okay, if you want to look, this is on page 150. Just trying to figure out where to start here. Okay, let's, uh, let's start from this paragraph. It's true that for us, as for every other creature, death waits. Our unique situation is that we know it. And this is the black motif in the sand painting of our day-to-day -day experience. But the other colors, the designs, the complexity of our lives, the brilliant flare before the dark, the dance over the abyss, all these come from choice. 
This is the other side of the coin of consciousness, to see beauty or not, to create or not, and ultimately to live and die gracefully or not. The night is coming, but our choice can be the beautiful sunset. It was choice that transplanted me. Personal choice has a size. It has limits, which are imposed by society, by upbringing, by character, and by the very choices which came before. Every choice can be as small as next door or as large as across the world. Looking back, I can see the choices made by myself and others that led to this present life, so far away from the one I knew as a child. The circumstances that brought me here to Japan are infinitely more complicated than the transplanting of the onions. Yet I like to imagine that in some way, Obscure to my limited vision, it was some universal hand that dug the hole and settled me into it and patted down the soil around my fragile roots. Probably only those who have elected to be similarly transplanted could fully understand the pain, the difficulty, the complexity of the period of acclimatization which followed. And we are a small band, we transplants, a very small percentage of humanity as a whole. So it's a question of choice, but it's also a question of how um, the choices that you make after the big choice. Do you choose to be um, a bright shining light in your uh, chosen place? Or do you choose to you know, be a person that complains all the time or whatever? Um, there used to be a a group in the Kansai called, maybe it's in the Kanto too. Anyway, it's called Bloom Where You're Planted. Um, this was in way back in the 70s or 80s. And uh, I think that um, it's a, an interesting and very good way to think about your life. Um, try and find a place uh, or a, a situation where you can allow yourself to bloom, even though um, the situation may be difficult, there may be problems, there may be all kinds of uh, challenges, but at the same time, um, it's possible to have a flower come out, to bloom, to create something. And um, maybe, this just occurred to me, it's better to be in a place that requires a lot of uh, adjustment, that gives you a lot of challenges because it's like having um it's like sometimes we have things that we need and something sometimes we don't and we have to do with what we have and that sort of ingenuity that is required for that leap of well, I don't have this, but I do have this, so I can figure out what to do. I think that's what brought me back to writing and drawing. Um, I needed something that I could do alone at home, something that didn't require me to go out and meet a whole bunch of different people because this place doesn't have very many people. So um, I chose writing and drawing because those were the things that I loved. I, all of my other uh, hobbies are solitary hobbies as well, and I guess that's my character, but um, it's also a, a, a comes from where I live. If I lived in the middle of Tokyo, I might, you know, join 15 different groups. I don't know, but that's not possible here, so, you know, I just did what I could, uh, made the choices that allowed me to put out a couple of small flowers 
that I hope other people will see and be inspired by as well. Yeah, that's great. I love that. Um, I also, that reminded me of when you're talking about uh, self-worth and is your self-worth uh, a judgment of how much you accomplish? No. And in, in your book, you're talking about before going to bed each night, talking, thinking about how many things you accomplished and then you advising people, just try to enjoy your life too. Don't always think about, did I accomplish all my goals all the time? Just sit and relax. <laughs> yeah, well, that's pretty, that's pretty recent as well. But I think that um, it's a very healthy thing, especially as we get older, to let go of this whole, okay, I need to be busy every single moment of my life. Um, I need to say to myself when I'm going to bed, uh, I did this, I did that, and that was my day. Um, other things that were part of your day that you probably didn't even notice, things like the sunset or the moon coming up or um, the feeling of uh, chopping vegetables or, you know, the, the warm water running over your hands as you're washing the dishes or something. Those things are important, too. Um, they're as important. There's no, okay, this is important and this isn't. Um, I remember Mark Twain in Tom Sawyer, he said, work is something that you're obliged to do and play is something that you're not obliged to do. That's a little bit simplistic. Um, but in a way, it's true because we make our own obligations quite a lot. Um, many of our the obligations that we force ourselves to do aren't from outside. They come from the inside. They come from a feeling that we're not worthy unless we have accomplished a certain amount of stuff. And very fortunately, I feel that in my own life, I, I have graduated from that. I've passed that now. Yeah. That was one of the, the many parts of your different stories that really spoke to me is your your conflict with trying to live your life to meet other people's expectations of what you should be doing, mm. how other people see you. And I think that's that's not only in Japan, that's something people around the world struggle with for sure. Um, one, of, one of the parts of, of your chapter fitting in on page 109, where you talk about um, how after many years, you're finally finding a more healthy balance um, of showing yourself as well as uh, helping other people doing what you're supposed to do from it's taken me a long time. Mm. Can you read that for us? I'm sorry. It's taken me a long time. Can you say the page number again? Uh, page 109. 109. Okay. <clears throat> it's taken me a long time and a good deal of counseling to realize what should have been obvious all along that blind conformity isn't the best way I can contribute to my community. Maybe the judgment wasn't really that harsh, and there was never any punishment for being myself. Maybe I made it all up. Who knows? These days I've become much more fearless, more human, more vulnerable, and at the same time stronger. I realize the importance of balancing actions and reactions. Sometimes it's better to bring out my Japanese side to put people at their ease, other times I enjoy throwing out a little remark to shake them up a bit. <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. Um, in the other book, uh, there was a short story about an old man who was working in the graveyard and his 
Gaijin foreign uh, neighbor who was actually me. This is actually a true story. I did have a fight with that guy in the graveyard. And um, he went and did all the work for everybody else, thinking that he would get a lot of kudos and credit for that. But from my point of view, it was like, well, what's the point of me being here if you're going to do all the work? I want to do some work too. I want some credit. You know, the whole group of us were there and it, it, this guy had come early and done all the work beforehand. So everybody was just standing around with nothing to do. It was very strange. And I'm like, don't do that. You know, that's not the way I, I thought that that wasn't, you know, that was the way that groups behave in Japan. You start off and you have a little um, greeting at the beginning and then everybody goes to work and then you stop, you know. But, um, you know, he didn't, for he was trying to get power for himself, so he didn't think about the other people. And it was, I, I, as, a, as a foreigner and also as a, you know, person who's lived in Japan for a long time, I thought, well, that's not right, you know. And so from, from both cultures, you know, I was thinking what he's doing really wasn't right. So, and it turned out that this guy was also, something of an outsider so he you know wanted to grab his uh self-worth wherever he could and that was one of the ways that he was trying to do it and um it's very pernicious to base your self-worth on what other people think um i remember once uh i don't remember where i read this but it was in a if you can imagine me speaking a Scottish accent, because I'm not going to attempt it, it was a um, an old man was telling his young niece or something like that. Um, you wouldn't be so worried about what other people think if you knew how seldom they do. People don't think about other people very much. They really don't. And and this whole business of being seen to be this or judged to be that, it's all just a house of cards, really. And, you know, it's, it's important to find the core of yourself more important than to worry about what other people are thinking all the time. This is something that I've come to realize in my <clears throat> old age. <laughs> yeah, no, it's really, that's wonderful. Such important lessons. Uh, when we've just got a couple more minutes, I'd like to bring it back to your house. Okay. Um, you're living in an old, beautiful rural house. You've changed it over the years. In your book, you have uh, our, a chapter about the house's voice. The house is speaking to mm -hmm. us. And then you talk about household gods. Um, mm -hmm. You talk about changing the doors, changing the sliding doors in seasons. This mm -hmm. is something I live in an old house I've never even heard of. Oh, um, really? <laughs> no, it's beautiful. I love it. But where do you store it? That would be my question. Um, well, we, we have a door cupboard that we oh, store all those doors in. Yes. Very nice. Um, but it seems like, and this is something I heard at the Minka Summit, a few other people were saying, you have to listen to your house. Definitely. You have to listen to what your house wants mm -hmm. and how your house wants to be. How have you been listening to your house over the years and living together in harmony? Um, well, I kind of, in a way, I learned this from my husband. Um, 
whenever something big would happen, like for example, let's say we have three storehouses and one storehouse, which is two story and the second floor of it, we wanted to make it into a library because that was the safest uh, structure in the, from the point of view of roof leaks. Um, so it was like, okay, how do we, what do we do with all the stuff that's already there so we can move it out in order to, you know, move the books in. And uh, my husband sat in front of the family altar for a long, long time asking, sort of not, not asking, but just kind of putting out the idea, what do we do? And he did get an answer and he said, okay, the, the house says that we have to move some stuff out of the second floor of a different storehouse in order to move that stuff in. And, you know, we sort of moved it around. It's a little bit like a Rubik's cube, our house. And um, one place, uh, there's never any really empty space. There's a lot of stuff everywhere. So we have to um, figure out where one bunch of stuff is going to go before we can use the space for something else. And uh, that kind of thing, um, the house will definitely tell you. And also, uh, over the last couple of years, we've done a lot of sorting and tossing. And I have always said to the house, I really, really need some advice. What do I keep and what do I throw away? And um, it definitely uh, gave me some ideas about that as well. Um, not one by one, but just in general, the house felt like as we were doing this, it felt like a dog being given its bath. I was really feeling this house was like, oh, okay, all this not light is coming into these corners that have not seen the light for like 40 or 50 or 60 or 70 years. And all these objects that I really knew were useless, but, you know, nobody listened to me. <laughs> You know, I think that um, if you do have the space, and this happens in every culture, you tend to fill it with, you know, you just put things somewhere. And uh, then, you know, half a century later, somebody comes upon it and they go, what the heck did they keep this for? This is horrible, you know, or whatever. <laughs> so we had a lot of that kind of stuff. But um, the main thing is that the house is so... Um, stable and it's such a survivor and it's so wise because it's seen so many little people living underneath its giant gigantic roof and um i i think it only makes sense to ask and see what kind of answers you will get um from any old object really but um particularly old structures like my house or you know, a house that you might live in, in in a kominka or something like that. Well, that's wonderful. I loved all the stories about your family life, raising kids, sharing the heated kotatsu table for homework and meals, bringing the family together under the covers when it's cold and sharing the same bed. There's so many wonderful ways that your house has influenced your life in Japan. And I, I could really connect with that. Yeah, definitely. It, it, you can label it as, you know, old fashioned or whatever, but, you know, a lot of those old fashioned things really, really um, were very valuable. And it's important not to put them aside simply because they're old or people don't do that so much anymore or whatever. You have to feel the energy of, 
of what you're doing and uh, see if it matches, you know, the energy of what you want your life to be like. Thank you so much, Rebecca. It was wonderful talking with you. And thank you so much for all the beautiful writing that you have done and are continuing to do. I also really a big fan of your artwork. It's beautiful. Thank you. Um, we will put all your links below so people can find more of your work and uh, look forward to more in the future. Thank you so much. Okay. Thank you very much. Stronger, I drop the arm.